Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Housing market right now seems to be in a bit of a holding pattern, right? And people thought that prices were going to fall. Well, they have a little bit, but there's still, I don't want to say durability, but it seems some stubbornness, especially on the part of people who would like to sell their homes. They want a certain price. They have that price in mind, and they are still holding on to the idea of getting that high price. So I think for people who were ever thinking of buying, some of them are kind of giving up. So it's not surprising to hear about this Ipsos poll that was conducted exclusively for Global News that suggests 63% of Canadians who don't currently have a home have given up on the idea of ever owning one. And that is similar to what they found a year ago when they did the same kind of poll there. Now, obviously, younger generations are the most likely to agree that owning a home is a major accomplishment, but they also now believe that's just a privilege reserved for the wealthy. Now, as I said, home prices have gone down over the past year, but you've still got those high interest rates, meaning that nobody is getting a break on payments. And so things remain pretty unaffordable out there. To talk more about this issue, Moshe Lander joins us now, Senior Lecturer at the Department of Economics at Concordia University. Moshe, thank you for being with us today. Good morning. Do these stats surprise you at all to hear that there is this kind of almost resignation among people when it comes to home ownership? No, uh, I don't really see that as being a surprising sort of thing, but I, I'm not sure that necessarily that would have changed much. You said from last year when the survey was done, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily different from 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, getting on that housing ladder has always been difficult, and the government has increased the down payment requirements, uh, which is is the biggest problem. It's not the mortgage itself. It, it's how to actually get the home in the first place. Right. I th- and th- maybe that's what people don't realize either. I was talking to somebody who worked at a bank and they said, you know, the posted mortgage rate might be 5%, but they're qualifying people at 7%. So it's just challenging just to get qualified these days. Yeah. You know, the, the government has this delicate balancing act that on the one hand, if it allows anybody, meaning non-Canadians, to buy Canadian homes, uh, this is, of course, going to be a source of demand, which drives prices up. If they try and restrict access to that by, say, you know, increasing the the minimum amount that you have to to pay to get that mortgage, that starts pricing Canadians out. So it's almost an impossible task for the the federal government to try and find a way to make the housing market work. Um, and and the reality is then that where Canadians are getting frustrated, it's because they're pinched in, in this middle point there, where uh, one policy that might help them. Uh, might actually end up hurting them. So what do you see happening in the market right now? Well, you know, I'm, I'm actually continuing to be a little bit bullish on the Canadian housing market. I, I think that there's a lot of people that are expecting a correction, that are expecting prices to fall significantly. And in some markets, that's definitely true. But, uh, you know, I don't think that's going to be long-lived. The, the reality is that there still is this incredible pent-up demand for housing 
and supply is not keeping pace with it. Uh, I don't have to tell anybody in greater Vancouver uh, that housing is very difficult to find. So, um, you know, I, I think that certainly if this is the high end of the interest rate cycle, uh, there might be a temporary pause, but come fall, you know, everybody starts looking for schools again and trying to make sure that the kids are in the right locations and people coming into the country. I can easily see the housing market continuing to, to spike. There also seems to be a real lack of people wanting to put their homes on the market, right? Like there's not a lot of listings out there. Right. And, and you know, that's kind of the delicate game that you play when you put your house on the market is you, you want to hold on for that right price. But if everybody tries to put their house for sale when that right price is achieved, that could actually depress housing prices, right? Because you flood the, the market with stock. It, it's, a, it's a weird time in Canada, too, because most of those homes that are owned are by, say, baby boomers, Gen X, uh, you know, people that are are not having as many children. So at some point, they are going to release a tremendous amount of housing into the market, and there's not going to be a lot of children there. They're going to buy it up. The The kind of Ponzi scheme that was played with the, the baby boomers was that because they were so plentiful, uh, they could drive housing prices up because they were well in excess of their parents' generation, right? The depression generation. So, you know, there is this inverted population pyramid that at some point it is going to play out to the benefit uh, of younger Canadians, but you know, baby boomers are living a long time. Gen Xers haven't even reached retirement age yet. We, we still could be talking about another 20, 30 years. And of course, as immigration continues in this country, uh, you know, that's another driver of housing prices going up. So you can understand why people just want to keep waiting to see if those prices go higher and higher. Right. And so you see that continuing to happen. Yeah. I, I just don't see what is there uh, to drive housing prices down. Um, you know, the rental market is now heating up. And so really what I look for is the relationship between rental prices and and housing prices. And they should roughly hold in a ratio of around, say, rental prices should be about 5% of the price of a home. Uh, If it falls below that, then renting is a good deal. If it's above that, then owning a home is a good deal. But uh, you know, where that disconnect might have happened, say, at the beginning of the pandemic, what's happened is that races have ta- uh, r- rents have taken off. And we've seen that as one of the big sources of inflation in this country. So I, I just don't see that uh, buying housing is is a bad deal right now. So in the study of economics, and when you look at our current set of circumstances, is there anything comparable? No, um, you know, there is a reason why young people in that poll continue to view housing as being a good investment. It's because it is a good investment. And, and it's not just an investment from a financial standpoint, it's an investment from a living standpoint too, right? Of course, it provides a roof over your head and it eliminates a landlord and uh, the responsibilities that come with having to, to answer to somebody. So uh, no, this this is the, the market. I think part of it, though, uh, you know, in what I look at is that there's a stigma attached to being a renter um, that kind of drives the market for housing unnecessarily in a way that doesn't necessarily exist in, say, European markets or uh, other countries where being a renter is a a perfectly respectable uh, living arrangement. That's interesting that you say that. So where do you think, what is that stigma and where do you think it comes from? Well, I mean, I, I I certainly grew up in a house where I was told that, you know, the best thing you can ever do is invest in real estate, right? So, you know, when we have a government that tries to aspire to help Canadians achieve home ownership, like it's just, it's ingrained into society. And the more that 
young people feel that it's something that only the wealthy can afford. It almost reinforces that that stigma then, right? That if you want to be wealthy yourself, if you want to be uh, kind of uh, accomplished in Canada, then you need to find a home. And so it, it, it just creates that view then and, and it keeps reinforcing it. We don't hear the government talking about, hey, being a renter is perfectly fine and we're going to provide you vehicles to try and help you rent a place um you know uh, to create more mobility uh just not in a financial sense but also in a social sense too i guess we've also created the idea with rentals not created the idea but there is that perception that it's so unstable that you're at the mercy of other people and that if you buy therefore you don't have that problem anymore yeah, I, I guess that maybe goes into like American culture. And of course, Canadians absorb a tremendous amount of American culture into our own, right? But that idea of freedom and, uh, you know, that individual, uh, you know, uh, as, as the source of, of goals uh, in American society and how kind of America was founded and built, uh, it probably seeps into the Canadian mindset too, that, you know, if you do want to have that rugged individualism, uh, you do need to be a homeowner and you can't be at the mercy of of uh, a rich landlord. Right. Okay. So all of those factors combine the most. So looking ahead to the rest of 2023, you're feeling like there's more to this market than other people feel. Yeah. You might see a pause through the summer. Uh, you might continue to hear about certain markets seeing a, a fall in housing prices, but uh, you're not going to hear about some sort of 2008 style housing market collapse. It's a pause. It's not a full correction that's going to happen here. So yeah, in the latter part of the year, it probably is going to start rising again. Uh, maybe not the way that we've seen it over the last decade, but if anybody thinks that say housing is going to be 50% less in the next five years, I don't see it because city councils just aren't providing the zoning laws to help home builders uh, catch up with that that demand. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Anytime. That's Moshe Lander, who's a senior lecturer at the Department of Economics at Concordia University. We we're talking about this Ipsos poll that shows uh, 63% of Canadians who don't own a home have given up, they say, on ever owning one. Uh, lots of factors go into that. But that, you know, Moshe Lander's take on the real estate market is so interesting because he feels like this is just a pause. Things are going to start to go up again. Uh, and I know there's a lot of real estate people who would love to have that happen, but I wonder how you feel about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Not good news at this time of year when you hear that Canada Revenue Agency workers have voted overwhelmingly in favor of taking strike action. Now, you're talking about almost 35,000 workers. They've been without a contract for more than a year. Negotiations have broken down over wages and remote work. Government hasn't even responded yet, according, according to the union, to their wage proposals. So there is still another round of negotiations coming in about a week's time, scheduled for three days. But when you think about it, what's coming up at the end of this month or what's happening right now, this is tax season. So how does this influence all of that? Well, joining us now is Mark Breer, who's a national president of the Union of Taxation Employees. Mark, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Sunny. What's going on right now then? So is everything being processed as normal? Right now, yes. It's business as usual so far. Okay. Has, it, may, has... it may change soon, though. Okay. How soon? Tell me about that. Well, uh, Friday this week, uh, the 14th, is the uh, first occasion that we, we have the legal right to uh, take a strike action. Uh, we need to respect the different requirements of the legislation, and uh, among them, the essential services agreement that we just signed with CRA on uh, March 14. 
So we need to wait 30 days. So that brings us to Friday, April 14th. Now, we wanted to go back at the bargaining table uh, this coming week, like tomorrow, the 11th. But the sheriff insisted to have a mediator, a federal mediator with the parties. So it got postponed until next week on, on the 17th. So it's, okay. it's, it's going to put more pressure on the bargaining teams to try to come to an agreement with you know, the current situation. So what kind of potential strike action is on the table, given that you also have this essential services agreement? Well, uh, there's uh, just over 1,400 of our 38,000. Like right now, we are about 38,000 members. So less than 4% of our members are going to be are deemed essential. So they're going to be, you know, continue to process the GST credits, child care benefits, the new uh, dental care program, the new housing program. Uh, some folks may answer the phone in our call centers uh, to, you know, tax questions, but that's going to be hundreds of people instead of over 8,000. And with more than a million calls a week, I can tell you that uh, a lot of people won't, won't get answers to their questions. The processing centers, if we shut them down, then not much can be processed. That's simple. So if people are waiting to produce their tax returns you know, in a week from now or the last stretch, they will have a delay. They will have a problem. So if they're counting on getting money back, they're going to have a problem. Yeah, that's why I've been saying since December file your taxes earlier this year to try to prevent people from being impacted. Uh, look, we don't want to go on strike. Uh, we want to hammer a deal at the bargaining table. But uh, we've been without a contract for more than four years, twice in a row. And now it's, all, it's reaching a year and a half. So we just ran out of patience. Right. It's, it's that simple. Like, we're, you know, the buck stops here this time. There's no more fooling around. There's no more delays at the bargaining table. We, we request to be respected more, but actually to be respected, period. Mark, have people been heeding your call then? Has there been more volume? Are people getting their taxes in? Well, people, I, I think it's maybe a little, a little bit, but I can't say. You should ask that question to CRA. Um, they don't share everything with the union. Uh, what I can tell you is we've been warning people. We've been asking the government to come to the table the CRA has no mandate from Treasury Board. Unfortunately, Treasury Board puts his nose in our business of negotiations, even though CRA is a distinct employer. And this is, this is like ridiculous. Like, how can you make people wait four years to get contracts? And I, I don't care if people are unionized or non-unionized, private sector, public sector. People deserve more respect than that. We don't even have a wage proposal from the CRA after a year of negotiations. How's that? Mark, this no, is... and we've been asking for it. Yeah, and this doesn't sound like it's going to be settled anytime soon. But Mark, we appreciate the information this morning. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I will pass that word along. Uh, that is Mark Briere, National President of the Union of Taxation. And the word that I'm passing along is get your taxes in sooner rather than later, because it does not sound like that is going to get settled Anytime soon, we're talking tens of thousands of employees, uh, unions who represent all the workers at the Canada Revenue Agency, potential to go on strike, well, in four days. He said, starting with essential job action there, they have an agreement, but that just slows everything down. So if you get a chance, get it in ASAP. This is Mornings with Simi. 
It hasn't even been a full week yet, but the controversy over the cancellation of SFU's varsity football program just continues to grow. I mean, as Simon Fraser University thought they were going to just do this quietly and it would go away, well, that, among other things, was a huge mistake. In fact, all we seem to hear about is more and more the storied history of this program. For instance, that more draft picks for the CFL have come from SFU than any other Canadian school. We're still looking for answers, but certainly no shortage of support for doing something to keep this program alive. Joining us now is Randy Ambrosi, Commissioner of the Canadian Football League. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. And you've written a letter about this. Tell me why. What is it? Well, I, I just we felt it was really important for you know our partners at U Sports uh, to to know how important we think that program at SFU is. Look, we have. You include uh, if you include SFU, we have 27, tw- pardon me, 28 schools that play football in Canada that supply our Canadian talent uh, for the CFL. And uh, look, we just uh, that program has been important. It is important, and we wanted our partners at U Sports to understand our position. So you know, we we sent a letter. We 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 believe it was positive in in tone, in, encouraging in tone, and again, it all boils down to. We need more football in Canada, not uh, not less. Right. So you're encouraging U Sports and Canada West, which are the two kind of university athletic program organizations, to get involved here. You would like to see them do more to help out. Well, I suppose uh, you know I would maybe characterize it as we wanted to prime the pump that in the event that uh, that Simon Fraser does make an application to join. We wanted to start the conversation with them early. There's a lot of moving parts to this issue, as you pointed out in your opening. There's a lot of different groups involved. <clears throat> Certainly, uh, BC Lions owner Amar Doman has expressed his support for the program and has already you know, demonstrated his support and, and, and a clear understanding of how important the program is. But we just wanted to go on the record, you know, make sure, again, U Sports is, uh, is a critically important partner for us and we wanted them to to start thinking about the possibility that uh, that on the other side of this equation, if you if Simon Fraser does make an application, we wanted to get ahead of the curve. How important is this? Do you think to the, the uniqueness of Canadian football and keeping that alive? Well, it's you know, look, it is so important. We are at the beginning of such a such a uh, an encouraging phase in our own history. You know, with the many changes we've seen over the last five years, new ownership in BC with Amar Doman, who I've already mentioned, Pierre Carl Palado now owning the Montreal Ouets. We're seeing successes and and growth in our league. The partnership with Genius Sports, a seven-year collective bargaining agreement with their players, a revenue-sharing deal. You know, it, there are so many reasons to be excited about our future. But one of the things we rely on to make our game great is great Canadian talent, which we've had for, you know, for decades. It's been, a, it's been one of the great bright spots of our league. It's what makes us so different and unique. And, uh, and we, need, you know, we need these schools playing football. We need that level of talent. And, and we need a school that's pumped a lot of wonderful talent into our league, uh, as SFU has done over the decades. So, you know, again, you can't understate how important it is. And we see the future for football in Canada being very bright. We just don't want to we don't want to lose a school uh, unnecessarily. Commissioner, how when you talk about Canadian football, is that a draw? Does it bring not just people who are Canadian and want to play football, but does it bring people from other countries like from the United States up here to play at schools to play Canadian football? 
Well, our game is a great question, by the way, and our game is unique. And it, and it allows for, a, for a, an athlete that's a world-class football player, it allows them to play a game that is slightly different. You know, our, our, uh, our linemen aren't quite as big as they are in the NFL, but our field is 65 yards wide. And, you know, you can't have a 340-pound defensive tackle in our league because that field is too big, and that poor guy would, uh, that poor guy would run out of gas you know, going sideline to sideline on our big field. Our game is unique and it's special and it does attract talent. As you probably know, we've also attracted a global community that are interested in, in being part of the Canadian Football League. And all of those signs tell us that we've got something special here. And you add to that the millions of Canadians who are devoted CFL fans and the Great Cup continues to be the single biggest annual sporting event in, in Canada. And you add all of those things together, it tells you that our league is important, our game is important, and the future of our game being played at uh, Canadian universities like Simon Fraser is important. Any reaction to your open letter? You're getting involved in this? Well, you know, we're just, of course, uh, it went out on Saturday. You know, we had uh, we had Easter Sunday, and uh, I'm guessing we'll start that conversation, you know, through the day today and in, in through this week. But, you know, we just thought... Uh, no, let's get it out. Let's get it out on Saturday. Um, you know, it start the conversation. I, I have spoken to the chief executive of U Sports, uh, who is a you know strong, strong leader for football in Canada, strong leader for sports. I'm happy to collaborate with him. He gave me some advice. He spoke to his colleagues in Canada West. So you know, this is all being done in a very collaborative, very positive way. And, uh, you know, I, I am hoping that the response to it will be very positive and uh, in the days ahead, we'll, starting, we'll start to see some progress made. It's really amazing how much like the groundswell of support has been to keep this going. But I guess my question is, have you heard from Simon Fraser University or, or has anybody heard from SFU about what went into this? Because it sure sounds like there has been a lack of communication there. Yeah, well, I haven't spoken to them directly, but we do have people through our system, but particularly the BC Lions. Dwayne Benoit, the uh, president and CEO of the Lions, has been very actively in, involved. George Cheka, who is a key member of Dwayne's executive team, is, a, is an alumnus from Simon Fraser, and they have been very involved in the conversation. So we are, you know, we're relying very heavily on, uh, on Dwayne and, and George and Amar, of course, uh, to have that direct contact with SFU, it's right in there. It's right in their backyard, and we think that's the right. We think that's the right leadership team to be talking directly to SFU. But Dwayne knows, as does Amar and as does George, that the league is going to help in any way that we can. Again, which is evidenced by our uh, sending that letter to U Sports, our talking to the leadership at uh, at U Sports last week, and we'll continue to be as involved as anyone wants us to be. Well, it's good to hear. We'll continue to cover that, too. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Well, happy uh, happy Easter Monday, and uh, let's forward, look forward to some great football being played at SFU. Me, too. All right, that's Randy Ambrosi, Commissioner of the Canadian Football League, talking about the, the letter that he has sent to both U Sports and Canada West, asking them to do everything they can 
to ensure the football program at Simon Fraser University has a place to play in Canada. So just to explain to you kind of what the deal is there. So U Sports in Canada West are the two kind of university league organizations where, you know, university football programs play in Canada. Now, Simon Fraser University had left Canada West, well, years back, must have been 10 years ago now, like a ways back, to join the NCAA, so playing at a lot of U.S. schools. But obviously there have been issues with that, especially at the division, the lower levels that they were playing there. So they didn't have a conference to play in. Rather than trying to find another spot to go, like U-Sports or Canada West, uh, they just folded the program, made the decision, announced it on April the 4th, so six days ago, but didn't consult. Both U Sports and Canada West have said they didn't have any conversations with Simon Fraser University about, you know, helping continue to program on what they could do, not even reaching out. And this is the part that really bugs me. Not even reaching out to say, hey, can you help us place our athletes, our student athletes at another school so they can continue to play uh, potentially on their scholarships as many of them are on play elsewhere. Just kind of telling them, yeah, we're going to pay for you for next year, but then that's it. Leaving them to scramble. No notice, no nothing. And that these are people who've worked, you know, years and years and years throughout school, throughout high school to make it to this point. So that is the concern. And now you've got the CFL involved, which is really amazing because the school, Simon Fraser's football program, has produced 217 CFL draft picks throughout the CFL's history. That is the most of any school in draft history. So we are going to continue to follow this story. We spoke with Amar Doman actually on the show the other day uh, on this exact issue. He's advocating hard for SFU to change this. But what we haven't heard from is Simon Fraser University. And believe me, we have tried, put in many requests to talk to somebody from the school, from the athletic department about this. What are they willing to do? Uh, this is a lot of pressure the school is getting. Are they willing to step up and help uh, these student athletes to continue the program? Like, what are they doing? We've got nothing on that so far. So we'll continue to make those requests and update you on this story. This is Mornings with Simi get you an update now on what we have seen happening on some of the streets in the city of Vancouver. So the decampment process along Hastings Street continues. You've seen more tents pop up there. And the truth is there's just nowhere for people to go. We know that now, right? City of Vancouver did not have enough spaces, whether it was supportive housing, whether it was shelter space, you name it. There's simply wasn't enough when they started to clear those spaces out. So some of the residents of that Hastings encampment have moved to, say, nearby Crab Park. They've had a slow trickle, they said, of new people showing up there. So the question, I guess, with all this isn't, well, what is the legal basis then for the removal of these and why are there still more encampments in other areas? What are the laws around this? Well, joining us now is Dr. Alexandra Flynn, who's an assistant professor of municipal laws and governments at UBC's Peter A. Allard School of Law. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Simi, it's great to be here with you. Dr. Flynn, could you start out by explaining to us here, so what is the law regarding tent encampments on our streets? Yeah, so part of the problem is we don't have a law. So there's no uh, province or, or government that has said this is what municipalities can and can't do with respect to encampments. Instead, we have city bylaws that say, you know, people can't loiter on streets, they can't put up tents, or they can't have garbage around. And so those are the basis for clearing encampments, those bylaws that are 
meant to apply to everybody, but of course, disproportionately affect people who don't have homes to go to. So that's the basis by which then the city is is moving in. It's not the fact that people are camping on the street. It is the other things that are going along with the camping on the street. Exactly. It's all of those kind of, I would say, kind of like petty rules that are meant to regulate city streets. Right. And this has gone to court before, hasn't it? It sure has. So it's gone to court many, many times. Um, Advocates have gone to court saying exactly what your introduction did, that there's no place for people to go, um, that it's um, contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms to push people away. And in some cases, um, they've been successful. So in Crab Park, for example, um, a case went to the court and the court said, it was um, it was basically that the encampment couldn't be cleared. So that's why that encampment is protected. Um, no officials can remove tents or people from that space because the courts have said, you know, it needs to be it needs to be there for individuals. Okay, so then under what circumstances could this like the city did the court lay out the circumstances under which the Crab Park encampment could be dismantled? They, they left it to um, basically the park. So it's the park board who governs that space. Um, and they said, you know, if you're going to come up with rules to clear it, they need to be reasonable. They need to be fair to encampment residents. People need to have notice. Um, you know, they need to be consulted, essentially. And so far, um, there haven't been any any, you know, kind of agreements that have been made. So at this time people can stay in the Crab Park encampment. But, you know, it's um, it's a constant moving target. These cases are very specific. They happen, they come to the court for a particular group of people at a particular time. So they're not the same as having a set of conditions that apply to all people who are who are homeless. Okay, that's um, perhaps, Dr. Flynn, what confuses people sometimes, right? Is that it, it, every situation is different. So exactly. it depends on where some of them is park boards, some of them is city, some of them are city of Vancouver. Exactly. Uh, so our, so in this case, was the legal basis also the fire services, the, the you know, fire services chief saying this is unsafe? Yes. And the fire chief has said that many times, that it's unsafe to have in, you know, have encampments, have people um, sleeping on the streets. So in July, there was another attempt to decamp people on the same basis that the fire risk made it too severe. Um, but of course, there's ways to mitigate that risk. Um, it can be mitigated like it is in Crab Park by, you know, having um, having the right tools available should a fire come to be or just making sure that the encampment is safer for people. So it's an argument to say that encampment shouldn't be there, but it doesn't uh, get rid of the bottom line, which is that people really have nowhere to go. Right. Well, and also, I guess, as these individual encampments pop up there, every set of circumstances is different. So the response also can't be the same. Absolutely. They're all different. Um, you know, they're, they're all different, but they all have a common core, which is that until there's adequate housing for people to go to, encampments will keep uh, appearing on city streets, in city parks, and it's just not a long-term or even a short-term solution to try to try to get rid of people from from these public spaces. Right. So, what does the law say then about the camping on an actual kind of public street? Yeah. So the law says that um, basically you can't obstruct a sidewalk, so you can't have um, tents or you know belongings or anything that's going to stop the free flow of traffic um, on that on that space. 
So it's a bylaw, basically, like I mentioned before, that that stipulates what what the street what the conditions of the street need to be. Right, and has that been upheld then? So if the city wanted to enforce that, they could. That's what they're arguing. So so far, there have not been applications that have been brought to court saying um, that what the city is doing is contrary to the law. But somebody, an advocate, could bring a case arguing that it is contrary to the law. It's just very difficult to bring those applications. You know, it takes lawyers and time and cost. And so, um, you know, it's it's difficult for um, unhoused people and their advocates to run to court every time a city official tries to enforce one of these bylaws. Dr. Flynn, what is the case in other cities? Do other cities deal with this differently? Um, I mean, it's... There's there are have been different ways of approaching encampments in different places. So, for example, in the city of Toronto, there was a pilot study that was done where an encampment was built up in a in Dufferin Grove Park, and the city decided to use um, human right a human rights approach. And so they were they worked individually with encampment residents. They made sure that encampment residents had the supports that they needed in order to move on, so that they had adequate housing. Um, there was a space for their belongings. They had mental health and other supports. Um, so for that pilot, it was a success. Um, people weren't pushed out like what happened on Hastings Street. It was a much slower process, but in the end, um, it was it was better. People felt like their rights were respected and that they weren't um, thrown out into uh, a sense of chaos. I mean, that's really the problem with the decampment is that you know, everything that somebody has is with them. They lose their ID, they lose their support systems. And so it just puts them further and further into chaos. So so if they were to go by the law, if they were to go by what the rules are, what the courts have set out, then what would that look like? If they were going to go by a human rights approach, then they would give people enough notice to make sure that they had other options available to them, um, that they had somewhere else to go, and they wouldn't move them until those options presented themselves. So basically, if they were going to follow the best practices, what happened on Hastings Hastings Street would not have happened. They would wait until people really did have an adequate other solution. Right, which has not happened. Uh, Dr. Flynn, thank you for your time on that. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for explaining that to us. That's Dr. Alexander Flynn, an assistant professor of municipal laws and governments at UBC's Peter Allard School of Law, explaining to us, you know, the different rules. I know because I get these emails from you all the time. I wonder the same thing is, well, like, why can't the city just have a policy and this is their policy and then they just follow that policy in dealing with these situations? Well, As Dr. Flynn just explained to us, every encampment is different. Might be the park board, uh, might be the city of Vancouver, might be depending on whether it's a public street or is it a park, is it private property, that the rules are different surrounding each one, which makes it very challenging to do that. And the process continues, by the way, that there are some tents that are back up there. So there'll be more to come on that story and we'll have the latest for you. This is Mornings with Simi. We need these schools playing football. We need that level of talent. And and we need a school that's pumped a lot of wonderful talent into our league, as SFU has done over the decades. So, again, you can't understate how important it is. And we see the future for football in Canada being very bright. We just don't want to we don't want to lose a school unnecessarily. 
That is Randy Rosie, Commissioner of the Canadian Football League, Commissioner of the CFL. We spoke to him about an hour ago on the show, and of course he was talking about the Simon Fraser University Varsity Football Program, which on April the 4th, I guess it was, not even a week ago, just unceremoniously shut down, cancelled. Still no good explanation, or any explanation for that matter, really, from Simon Fraser University about this. And what Randy Ambrosi said there, I think, has struck a chord with a lot of people, where he said there's been a lot of people who've come through that program. In fact, 217 draft picks in the CFL alone have come from SFU, the most of any other school. One of them on the line with us right now, actually. Michael Couture is with us, offensive lineman for the BC Lions and SFU football alum. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what did you think when you heard the news about this? I was completely shocked uh, and disappointed, to be honest. Um, You know, I know the success on field for the last couple of years hasn't been where we want it, but I didn't think that the future of the program was was going to be kind of in this situation. I think you, you said where we want it. So you still connect with the program. You still feel like you were a part of it. Oh, hundred percent. I think every alum um, feels that way as well. I mean, my, I played four seasons um, for SFU and that's an extremely important uh, step in my football career. So yeah, it's close to my heart for sure. What was it like for you to get there? Was that a program that you had wanted to go to, that you had heard about? Yeah, 100%. So I went to uh, Centennial Secondary in Coquitlam. Um, I had switched high schools. I'm from Burnaby originally, literally at the bottom of Burnaby Mountain. So this one really hits close to home. I, I grew up watching you know, SFU uh, football highlights on, on YouTube, and I knew that was somewhere that I wanted to play. So I was very fortunate to be able to get the opportunity to go play there. Right. And what was it like for you, like education wise? I guess, Michael, what I've been worried about is a lot of student athletes who who chose that school. Like, have you heard about how they're feeling right now? It's it's really uh, disheartening. And not even that, it's it's the timing of of the decision. You know, it's it's just after spring ball, which means they're just ramping up, getting ready for finals. You know, finals week uh, is stressful enough um, on its own, you know. Um, trying to succeed in school and out on the field, but having this added external stressor of trying to figure out, you know, if you're going to keep playing, you know, how many credits are going to transfer over to an, another school that you potentially might want to go to. If this is, you know, the final kind of decision for the program, it's it's hard to wrap my head around. Do you think people, Michael, underestimate the educational value of, say, playing football and going to a university? Uh, yeah, I would, I would say so for sure. I remember my days were extremely long. Um, and you know, those years really taught me the value of hard work and, uh, you know, goal setting. I mean, the list goes on. And so is that a place, do you think you kind of, you kind of found yourself? That was the place where you thought, okay, this is what I do. A hundred percent. Yeah. What are you hearing from other players? Uh, current or, or past? Both. Like what's, what did the talk been like about this? uh it's a it's a serious head scratcher um it's just really unfortunate um when you kind of dig into the details of what's kind of gone on it seems like although they said that all the options were exhausted um it really doesn't seem that way and to see you know not just people involved with sfu but football across canada has really kind of banded together in the last week and shown support towards what's going on and it's just as a whole it just 
you can tell it's not it's not correct. So I'm very confident that something is going to be you know is going to come of this. It's going to be good. Um, so we'll just we're going to see where it goes. Now, as an alum, and I know I know SFU football alum are close. They they still like they fundraise for the program. They do all sorts of stuff. Were you told? Was there any inkling that this was going to happen? Nothing. And that's that's the really unfortunate part is that it seems like a lot of you know important uh, pieces that that make SFU football what it is were not advised on this before it came out. Um, and on top of that, you know, they said that they knew weeks prior to the announcement, which means they, they knew before spring camp. And my issue with that is, is that it, football is a very physical, violent sport. And a lot of guys had serious injuries in, in spring camp now seemingly for nothing. If they knew that the, the program was going under, they shouldn't have even done that. And on top of that, they had they were in the Lone Star Conference. Um, they had a 2023 schedule created already um so you know they said there was uncertainty going forward and whatever else but you're not putting the student athletes at you know in the best position if you're cutting it when you're cutting it and not letting them play and get film and kind of plan out you know their their following years so there's just so much that goes into it that's not that's not right yeah i've been reading a lot about this as well on social media it sounds like those the players those student athletes are working really hard to try to land somewhere else is there a lot of support for those student athletes right now michael like is there help for them to land somewhere else i mean you know a majority of the information i'm getting is through social media um and a lot of the you know big you know football twitter pages and on instagram and stuff they're sharing a lot of uh of the highlight tapes and information for available athletes. Um, so there are, there are guys that are, you know, kind of trying to figure out their options, but at the same time, there's a number of students that are saying, Hey, you know, I have confidence in the SFU football alumni group and what they're going to be able to do to help uh, save the program. So they're kind of waiting to see uh, what kind of decision is, is made uh, when it comes to SFU first. Are you hopeful? Yes, I'm extremely hopeful. I'd, I'd be surprised if this, if this truly was the end. Well, just to show you, doesn't it, though, Michael, just how passionate people are about this program? Oh, 100%. I mean, like you said, 217 draft picks. Uh, you know, that's that's history right there. The, I mean, this program has been around for 57 years, and so I uh, I don't believe it'll end this way. I hope not either. Listen, Michael, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, that's Michael Couture, who's an offensive lineman for the BC Lions and SFU alum. Went to Simon Fraser University, played football there. Local boy, you heard him say, right? Grew up, went to Centennial Secondary, dreamed of playing at Simon Fraser University football and did that. And now just can't believe that they would end it this way. And there are so many more questions about this. And to me, it is about those student athletes and hoping that they land somewhere else, that they can get that education, that they can get the support that they need to do this. But there does just so many questions about what happened here, why they would do this. And again, as I said, we've tried to talk to Simon Fraser University about this. Many people have, heck, the owner of the BC Lions has tried to talk to SFU about this and still has not heard back about connecting with them and having those meetings. That's what we heard from them a couple days ago.